All right, I gotta explain this one up front. Um, the idea of the gimmick zone is whatever you want this week. Um, so every show, I have a scripted intro, and then I improvise the rest of the show. We're doing that backwards today. I'm gonna try to remember the intro with no script, and then when we get to the topic, a fully scripted episode. Theme song! Mighty Cathar, Elder God of the Lake, hear our prayers to your greatness, and provide us with a bounty of fish. My car broke down and I went into debt I've been paying and paying but I ain't done yet You can pay for a topic or vote on a gimmick Anything can happen so come on and get with it Listening to Fix My Car Cast, hosted by Bear Claw Billy, and this is episode 82. Comedian and musician Keith Hebert is um, off the grid. Uh, but first, housekeeping. This is the show where you pick what I say and how I say it. Pick a topic or prompt by donating to the GoFundMe and vote on the gimmick by joining my Patreon for just a dollar a month. Join at the $5 or higher level and get bonus content and behind-the-scenes footage. Links are in the description. Also down there in the description, merch. You want merch? You got it. Well, you got to pay for it, but, you know, once you pay for it, you'll get it. Um, shit. <laughs> Uh, where do we go from here? Um, um, I told you about merch, and now, um, hey, I got an album out. It's called Etholog. Go check it out. It's a good one. Um, it's an ambient album. Uh, find it wherever you get music. Um, friendly reminder that the show ends when we hit $3,000, so keep on donating. And um, when we get to $2,000, I will watch every Fast and Furious movie back-to-back -back and then record my podcast at the very end. Help kill my show. Uh, topic suggestion. Hey, everybody, let's uh, think of a topic. Um, what's something I could talk about? Um, uh, Star Wars, The Phantom Menace. The experience of seeing in theaters and the experience of playing Episode 1 Pod Racer on the Nintendo 64. I have not scripted anything, and uh, this brings us to... Uh, I have not scripted anything about the intro. This is the gimmick this week. I have to try to remember all the intros of what... Um, uh, best city in the world. Uh, checking in on the best city in the world, uh, based on which city... Uh, downloaded the most episodes this week and we have a singles night tie if I recall correctly um, and I believe Westbrook came out on top because Westbrook has listened to the most episodes congratulations uh, Westbrook Maine let it be known that your cocoa and cookie dispenser um, reindeer paddock and tree nursery are the best in the world for seven days Pay no attention to the fact that there's a Christmas tree on the other side of the room that made me think of that. Okay, um, all right, now it's time for, shit, what comes next? Now, now it's time for, oh, wow, uh, so sorry. Um, is it already time for the poll? 
the gimmick poll. Um, yeah, I think it is. Did I miss anything else? Um, all right, the gimmick poll. And I did not come up with any gimmicks ahead of time. So I'm kicking them from the hip right now. These are your choices for next week's gimmick poll. Um, number one, incorporate 10 lines from a random philosophy textbook. Number two, do uh, it like uh, an episode of Care Bears. There we go. Um, uh, fucking um, do it with a paper bag over your head. Um, and do uh, 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 do a Hal 9000 voice from 2001 a space odyssey those are your options and if you'd like me to repeat them i don't remember any of them but they will be on the poll you can go vote on my patreon for just a dollar a month um links are in the description vote for whichever one of those you like there's no returning gimmick for that week but there will be one next week um remember any gimmick that gets just a single vote is eligible to return in six weeks Oh, the poll closes. Please don't consider this cheating, but I'm looking at my calendar. The poll closes Thursday, August 3rd at noon Eastern America time. All right. <laughs> time to start this week's gimmick, which is script the unscripted part and vice versa. Typically, gimmicks don't start until housekeeping is out of the way so that you don't miss any vital information. But the gimmick this week is, in fact, that we're already in the gimmick zone. I just did the whole housekeeping intro unscripted. I hope I didn't forget anything. I hope it wasn't a hard listen. Um, but now, we are entering the scripted zone. From this point on, everything is scripted. <laughs> Um, and there's no sponsored topic for today. So today's topic will be inspired by a randomized Wikipedia page, which full disclosure I randomized in order to write the script. So I'm not randomizing it live right now. I already know what it is. And today we are talking about the Hanani Toot Theorem. This is going to be a real treat for all you topological graph theory fanatics out there. As you're well aware, the Hanani Toot Theorem is a result on the parity of edge crossings in a graph drawing. The basic idea here is that every drawing in the plane of a non-planar graph contains a pair of independent edges, not both sharing an endpoint that cross each other an odd number of times. We can even phrase it as a planarity criterion. A graph is planar if and only if it has a drawing in which every pair of independent edges crosses evenly or not at all. Now, you're probably wondering how we got here. Well, there's a clue in the name. The Hanani-Toot theorem is named after Haim Hanani, who proved in 1934 that every drawing of the two minimal non-planar graphs K5 and K33 has a pair of edges with an odd number of crossings. And of course you know that K5 is a non-planar graph with minimum number of edges on five vertices, and K33 is a non-planar graph with minimum number of edges on six vertices. But what about toot. Well, 
W.T. Toots' contribution is that he stated the full theorem explicitly in 1970. Though, it's worth noting that a parallel development of similar ideas in algebraic topology has been credited to Egbert Van Kampen, Arnold S. Shapiro, and Wu Wenjin. So, this is all a fine and dandy bit of trivia, but how do we apply this knowledge? Well, one consequence of the theorem is that testing whether a graph is planar may be formulated as solving a system of linear equations over the finite field of order two. And get this, these equations can be solved in polynomial time, but the resulting algorithms are less efficient than other known planarity tests. With me so far? Great. For other surfaces S than the plane, a graph can be drawn on S without crossings if and only if it can be drawn in such a way that all pairs of edges cross an even number of times, which is what we call the weak hanani toot theorem for S. I'm guessing you know where this is going. That's right, the strong hanani toot theorem, known for the projective plane as well as for the Euclidean plane, states that a graph can be drawn without crossings on S if and only if it can be drawn in such a way that all independent pairs of edges cross an even number of times without regard for the number of crossings between edges that share an endpoint. The same approach, in which one shows that pairs of edges with an even number of crossings can be disregarded or eliminated in some type of graph drawing, and uses this fact to set up a system of linear equations describing the existence of a drawing, has been applied to several other graph drawing problems, including upward planar drawings, drawings minimizing the number of uncrossed edges, and clustered planarity, which, ooh boy, don't get me started on clustered planarity. So, a clustered planar graph is a graph together with a hierarchical clustering on its vertices, such that the graph drawn together with a collection of simple closed curves surrounding each cluster, cluster so that there are no crossings between graph edges or clusters. Now, I'm veering a little off topic here, but if you'll indulge me... The clustering can be described combinatorially by a collection of subsets of the vertices such that, for each two subsets, either both are disjoint or one is contained in the other. It is not required that the clustering be maximal, nor that every vertex belong to a cluster. In a clustered planar drawing, no two edges may cross each other, that is, the graph must be planar, no two of the curves representing clusters may cross each other, an edge may cross a cluster boundary only if it connects a vertex inside the cluster to a vertex outside the cluster, and when an edge and cluster boundary cross, they may cross only once. After a whole lot of work on this problem, a polynomial time algorithm testing clustered planarity was found as recently as 2019 by Radoslav Fulek and Kasaba Toth. Ugh, love those two. Now, I didn't forget about you upward planar drawing stands. Let's circle back to that. <laughs> 
An upward planar drawing of a directed acyclic graph is an embedding of the graph into the Euclidean plane in which the edges are represented as non-crossing monotonic upwards curves. That is, the curve representing each edge should have the property that every horizontal line intersects it in at most one point, and no two edges may intersect except at a shared endpoint. In this sense, it really is the ideal case for layered graph drawing, a style of graph drawing in which edges are monotonic curves that may cross, but in which crossings are to be minimized. Let's get into it. A directed acyclic graph must be planar in order to have an upward planar drawing, but not every planar acyclic graph has such a drawing. Among the planar directed acyclic graphs with a single source, vertex with no incoming edges, and sync, vertex with no outgoing edges, the graphs with upward planar drawings are the ST planar graphs, planar graphs in which the source and sync both belong to the same face of at least one of the planar embeddings of the graph. More generally, a graph G has an upward planar drawing if and only if it is directed and acyclic, and is a subgraph of an ST planar graph on the same vertex set. Now, in an upward embedding, the sets of incoming and outgoing edges incident to each vertex are contiguous in the cyclic ordering of the edges at the vertex. A planar embedding of a given directed acyclic graph is said to be bimodal when it has this property. Additionally, the angle between two consecutive edges with the same orientation at a given vertex may be labeled as small if it is less than pi or larger if it is greater greater than pi, or maybe that's tau. Each source or sink must have exactly one large angle, and each vertex that is neither a source nor a sink must have none. Additionally, each internal face of the drawing must have two or more small angles than large ones, and the external face must have two more large angles than small ones. A consistent assignment is a labeling of the angles that satisfies these properties. Every upward embedding has a consistent assignment. Conversely, every directed acyclic graph that has a bimodal planar embedding with a consistent assignment has an upward planar drawing that can be constructed from it in linear time. I know, right? Another characterization is possible for graphs with a single source. In this case, an upward planar embedding must have the source on the outer face, and every undirected cycle of the graph must have at least one vertex at which both cycle edges are incoming, for instance, the vertex with the highest placement in the drawing. Conversely, if an embedding has both of these properties, then it is equivalent to an upward embedding. Ooh, I really want to get into the computational complexity of upward planar drawing, but I don't know if there's enough time.
All right, quick summary. There are several special cases of upward planarity testing that are known to be possible in polynomial time, such as testing whether a graph is st planar may be accomplished in linear time by adding an edge from s to t and testing whether the remaining graph is planar. Along the same lines, it is possible to construct an upward planar drawing, when it exists, of a directed acyclic graph with a single source and sink in linear time. Testing whether a directed graph with a fixed planar embedding can be drawn upward planar with an embedding consistent with the given one can be accomplished by checking that the embedding is bimodal and modeling the consistent assignment problem as a network flow problem. The running time is linear in the size of the input graph and polynomial in its number of sources and sinks. Because oriented polyhedral graphs have a unique planar embedding, the existence of an upward planar drawing for these graphs may be tested in polynomial time. Testing whether an outer planar directed acyclic graph has an upward planar drawing is also polynomial. Every series parallel graph oriented consistently with the series parallel structure is upward planar. An upward planar drawing can be constructed directly from the series parallel decomposition of the graph. More generally, arbitrary orientations of undirected series, parallel graphs, may be tested for upward planarity in polynomial time. Every oriented tree is upward planar. Every bipartite planar graph, with its edges oriented consistently from one side of the bipartition to the other, is upward planar. A more complicated polynomial time algorithm is known for testing upward planarity of graphs that have a single source, but multiple sinks, or vice versa. Testing upward planarity can be performed in polynomial time when there are a constant number of tri-connected components and cut vertices and is fixed parameter tractable in these two numbers. <coughs> Excuse me. It is also fixed parameter tractable in the cyclomatic number of the input graph. It is also fixed parameter tractable in the number of sources, i.e. vertices with no in edges. If the y-coordinates of all vertices are fixed, then a choice of x-coordinates that makes the drawing upward planar can be found in polynomial time. However, it is NP-complete to determine whether a planar-directed acyclic graph with multiple sources and sinks has an upward planar drawing. Now. I know this whole episode started on the Hanani Toot theorem, but have you got room for another theorem? I'll go quick, I promise. Okay. So Ferry's theorem, named after Istvan Ferry, although it was proved independently by Klaus Wagner in 1936, Istvan Ferry in 1948, and Sherman K. Stein in 1951, states that any simple planar graph can be drawn without crossings, so that its edges are straight line segments and the same is true of upward planar drawing. 
Every upward planar graph has a straight upward planar drawing. A straight line upward drawing of a transitively reduced ST planar graph may be obtained by the technique of dominance drawing, with all vertices having integer coordinates with an n by n grid. However, certain other upward planar graphs may require exponential area in all of their straight line upward planar drawings. If a choice of embedding is fixed, even oriented series parallel graphs and oriented trees may require exponential area. Fun fact, upward planar drawings are particularly important for Haas diagrams of partially ordered sets. Excuse me as these diagrams are typically required to be drawn upwardly. In graph-theoretic terms, these correspond to the transitively reduced directed acyclic graphs. Such a graph can be formed from the covering relation of a partial order, and the partial order itself forms the reachability relation in the graph. If a partially ordered set has one minimal element, has one maximal element, and has an upward planar drawing, then it must necessarily form a lattice, a set in which every pair of elements has a unique unique greatest lower bound and a unique least upper bound. The Haas diagram of a lattice is planar if and only if its order dimension is at most 2. However, some partial orders of dimension 2 and with one minimal and maximal element do not have an upward planar drawing. Whoo! Gang, let me know if I'm boring you with this stuff, because I could talk about topological graph theory all day. I know I started on Haim Hanani and W.T. Toot, but we could get into John Hopcroft, Robert Tarjan, Fan Chung, oh my gosh. So she studied the problem of embedding a graph into a book with the graph's vertices in a line along the spine of the book. You see, the edges are drawn on separate pages in such a way that edges residing on the same page do not cross. And this problem abstracts layout problems arising in the routing of multi-layer printed circuit boards. And by the way, topological is just one part of graph theory. This stuff goes in all directions and has practical applications in computer science, linguistics, physics, chemistry, mathematics, biology, social sciences. Hell, the origins of graph theory and topology start from a thought experiment about navigating your way through a city. Do we... Do we have time for the Seven Bridges of Konisberg? Hell yeah, we have time for the Seven Bridges of Konisberg. Okay, so the city of Konigsberg in Prussia, now Kal Kaliningrad, Russia, was set on both sides of the Pregel River and included two large islands, Nifov and Lomps, which were connected to each other and to the two mainland portions of the city by seven bridges. The problem was to devise a walk through the city that would cross each of these bridges once and only once. By way of specifying the logical task unambiguously, solutions involving either one, reaching an island or mainland bank other than via one of the bridges, or two, accessing any bridge without crossing to its other end, are explicitly unacceptable. Leonard Euler proved that the problem had no solution in 1936. 
The difficulty he faced was the development of a suitable technique of analysis and of subsequent tests that established this assertion with mathematical rigor. Let's dive into Euler's analysis, shall we? Euler first pointed out that the choice of root inside each land mass is irrelevant. The only important feature of a root is the sequence of bridges crossed. This allowed him to reformulate the problem in abstract terms, laying the foundations of graph theory, eliminating all features except the list of land masses and the bridges connecting them. In modern terms, one replaces each land mass with an abstract vertex or node, and each bridge with an abstract connection, an edge, which only serves to record which pair of vertices land masses, is connected by that bridge. The resulting mathematical structure is a graph. Since only the connection information is relevant, the shape of pictorial representations of a graph may be distorted in any way without changing the graph itself. Only the existence or absence of an edge between each pair of nodes is significant. For example, it does not matter whether the edges drawn are straight or curved or whether one node is to the left or right of another. Next, Euler observed that, except at the endpoints of the walk, whenever one enters a vertex by a bridge, one leaves the vertex by a bridge. In other words, during any walk in the graph, the number of times one enters a non-terminal vertex equals the number of times one leaves it. Now, if every bridge has been traversed exactly once, it follows that for each landmass, except for the ones chosen for the start and finish, the number of bridges touching that landmass must be even. Half of them in the particular traversal will be traversed toward the landmass, the other half away from it. However, all four of the landmasses in the original problem are touched by an odd number of bridges. One is touched by five bridges, and each of the other three is touched by three. Since... At most, two land masses can serve as the endpoints of a walk. The proposition of a walk traversing each bridge once leads to a contradiction. In modern language, Euler shows that the possibility of a walk through a graph traversing each edge exactly once depends on the degrees of the nodes. The degree of a node is the number of edges touching it. Euler's argument shows that a necessary condition for the walk of the desired form is that the graph be connected and have exactly zero or two nodes of odd degree. This condition turns out also to be sufficient, a result stated by Euler and later proved by Karl Heyerholzer. Such a walk is now called an Eulerian path or Euler walk in his honor. Further, if there are nodes of odd degree, then any Eulerian path will start at one of them and end at the other. Since the graph corresponding to historical Konigsberg has four nodes of odd degree, it cannot have an Eulerian path. An alternative form of the problem asks for a path that traverses all bridges and also has the same starting and ending point. Such a walk is called an Eulerian circuit or an Euler tor. Such a circuit exists if and only if the graph is connected and all nodes have an even degree. All Eulerian circuits are also Eulerian paths, but not all Eulerian paths are Eulerian circuits. 
Uhler's work was presented to the St. Petersburg Academy on the 26th of August, 1735, and published as Solutio Problematis ad Geometrium Cetus Pertinentis, the solution of a problem relating to the geometry of position, in the journal Commentary Academia Scientarium Petropolitanae, Nailed it. In 1741, it is available in English translation in the world of mathematics by James R. Newman. I know I'm way off from the Hanani Toot theorem here, but I'm glad we crossed that bridge when we came to it. Ha! Seven bridges at Konigsberg. What a trip. Ha again! Friends, I've had such a spectacular time talking about graph theory with you today. Maybe one of you can sponsor another episode on this topic, and we can jump into adjacency matrices, Grundy numbers, anti-chains. You could quite literally talk about this stuff for hours. But alas, I must retreat back into the pseudo-forest. Thanks for listening, and as always, write your vertices as dots and your edges as lines between the two vertices they join.